Uh, last Sunday I asked those of you who were here, what was the favorite uh, Christmas gift that you received this year? And many of you thought for a while and we had some great answers from the kids and from the adults and there were toys or gadgets and then there were people who just said having time with my family was a huge blessing or time with friends. This week though I want to ask you something that might be even harder to answer. What is the best gift that you ever received for Christmas? What is the best gift that you ever received for Christmas? For some of you, you might you know, way back into the dark recesses of your memory and remember that perfect Christmas gift you got when you were maybe seven or eight years old, that train track you got, or maybe that album that you desperately wanted, whatever it might be. For some of you, it might be a gift that you received this year or last year, maybe a, a beautiful piece of artwork or a piece of jewelry or something, or maybe it was the gift of someone coming home for Christmas. I'm not really sure. But there are many choices I have, and I could have given you a whole host of reasons for them. But the one that really endures, because it happens every Christmas, I kind of feel like I get re-gifted this gift, is in my pocket. And it is this. It is a Merry Christmas uh, ornament. It says Merry Christmas on there. And it's a beautiful gift. I can see Hannah smiling under her mask. And uh, this gift is... Um, has a picture, which is beautiful, of my son and Hannah as, uh, when they were a lot younger. And there's a picture of me. They're giving me a big Christmas hug at the time. And that's pretty neat. So every year we get it out. But there's something even better about it. See if you can hear this story. And you might need to turn up the lectern mic. Just a heads up. You can give me a little more volume on the lectern mic. Let's see if we can get this working. Here we go. This is Caleb. It's just such a cool gift. Every year that gets pulled out as we decorate the tree. We do that on the third Sunday of Advent. And uh, the kids are excited about it. Even Lizzie, who's not in it, she gets excited about it and she wants to play it. You know, and it's just that it brings a tear to my eyes. I hear Hannah sing and then Caleb be like, I love you. You know, so how can you not just think that is just such a great gift? And as any parent here will probably attest to, you probably think similarly about something like that. And hopefully that will endure for many years to come. It's, I think it's endured for about, gosh, 10 years already. So hopefully we'll get another 20 or 30 out of it before it completely dies. But... Often it's the simplest gift, isn't it? It's the simplest gift. Like someone said last week, I just had time with my family, right? It's the simplest gifts that didn't cost anything that are the most meaningful. And for instance, this year, two of my kids, the younger two, decided that because they don't earn money, they would write a song to sing on Christmas Day. So they each wrote a, a different song and Caleb stands up and he sings a song around the Christmas table. And then Lizzie, not wanting to be outdone because she hates being outdone, uh, she got up and she sang a song that she had written as well. And it, it was beautiful. And they were probably my most memorable Christmas gifts this year. I will not forget those things. Often it's the simplest things. And today as we continue our His Story series, explaining how History is really just God's story. It's the story of God's revelation, his plan to rescue his creation, you and me, from sin and death. We're going to talk about some very important and memorable gifts. Not because of their expense, although they probably were expensive, but because of their meaning. You see, like each of us probably and hopefully put a lot of thought into the gifts that we gave to our loved ones this Christmas. I think the wise men, as they came to Israel, 
put a lot of thought into what they were going to give to Jesus and to the three gifts they had. But in fact, actually, there's a fourth gift, and we'll come to that in a moment as well. So first of all, I'm going to give you a little context in the story, even though you might think, well, I know the Christmas story, Jonathan, but let's give it a little context. It might help. And then we'll look at the three gifts, the first three gifts the wise men brought, and then we'll look at the fourth gift that they brought as well and how that impacts us. So first of all, a little bit of context. We're in Matthew's gospel. You can follow along on the screen or feel free to open up your announcement sheet or your Bible if you want to use those. And first of all, we see that Matthew, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he was a tax collector who became a believer. And that must have been a big change from a hated person to someone dearly loved by God himself. And he writes this about 50 or 60 years after this event took place. And he gives us a little context. And most of it's packed into the first verse or two. First of all, he tells us after Jesus was born. So when does this event happen? Ding, ding, ding. It's not hard, is it, right? This happens after the birth of Jesus and probably not on the same day as we've become accustomed to. Think of the the nativity scenes you see. It's Christmas Eve night. The stars are shining. There's shepherds there. Baby Jesus, we talked about this on Christmas Eve. He's not crying because he doesn't have any lungs or something like that. And uh, And then you've got the wise men there as well on the other side. Actually, it's more likely it probably happened a few days, weeks, maybe even months later. And how do we know that? Well, because if you read on this story, we see that Herod is troubled, and he's troubled because he's worried about this king of the Jews. He's thinking, maybe something's actually happening, and there's someone come to usurp me. And so he decides he's going to kill the infants, the infant boys, who are two years and younger. Okay, which gives us a sense of time frame for this, including the whole story of the wise men. Probably all happened within the first year or so of Jesus' life, but probably not on the day itself. So it's quite possible Jesus is a year old by now. Well, next we see where this event happens. It happens in Bethlehem in Judea. So clearly Mary and Joseph are still there. They've stayed more than one night. They may have stayed a few weeks. They may have stayed a few months, maybe waiting until Jesus is ready to travel. And the time period is then given to us. Matthew writes this. In the days of Herod the king. So we have a time frame for our story. Now, this isn't the same King Herod who Jesus comes before just before he's crucified 33 years later. That's a relative of his. This is a different king. This is King Herod who reigned from 37 BC and died in 4 BC. Now, note that's four years before the birth of Christ. So you might start thinking, well, hold on. How is it that Jesus was born? At this time, during the reign of Herod, if it's four years actually B.C. before his birth. Well, it's worth noting that the the system we use for dating in history was actually a later invention. So we use B.C., which stands for? And A.D., which stands for? Anno Domini. Thank you, Latin scholars there. And that means? Well, yeah, well, no, not really. What does that mean? Someone, I heard you say it. Come on, loudly. In the year of our Lord, right? Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, okay? And so we use that system. And it was invented actually 500 years after the birth of Christ, 521 AD, by a monk called Dionysius. And he does it in this attempt to stabilize not really the Christmas date, but the Easter date. And he doesn't really have much to work with. Um, And so he he comes up with a date that's really based on what he sees in scripture and what he kind of knows of himself or known history at the time. But once more data becomes available, we discover that likely Jesus was born four to six years earlier. And so his dating system is a little bit off. And that's why Matthew writes that Jesus was born during the time of Herod the Great. Now, what do we know about Herod the Great? Well, he's this strange mix of he's a clever and very efficient ruler who does some good things, 
but he's also paranoid and he's a cruel tyrant. You can already tell that from our story. He's politically astute. He doesn't do anything stupid to undermine himself with the Romans who are his bosses. He doesn't want to do anything there because he'll lose his power. In fact, they've given him the title King of the Jews, which he's taken, or King, sorry, King Herod. And so, but he does do some good things where also he he builds things in Israel, like he restores the temple uh, to its former beauty and does a great work there. But then, because of this paranoia, he's constantly fearing conspiracy. So he d to the point that he executes his wife when he suspects that she's plotting against him. Then he executes his three sons. Then he executes his next wife and his mother-in-law as well because they're all suspected of conspiracy. And as we see in our story today, very tragically, he then slaughters these innocent infant boys in Bethlehem. So that's who is on the throne. Well, next, Matthew tells us who our protagonists are in the story. These are the wise men from the east. Wise men from the east came. And the Greek word used by Matthew for wise men is magoi, okay, from which we get our word magic. Think about that for a moment. And this word could either mean these are learned men who study the stars, okay, or it can mean these are men who practiced magical arts. Now, because astrology was widely used at the time, that's think about horoscopes, things that we actually still have today, look in the back of the newspaper or whatever, you know, am I a Libra, am I a Pisces, and so on. Um, it's plausible that these were astrologers, okay? They've come from the direction of Babylon where they might have been very popular. But they're likely not kings. So think about the carol that we sing. It's probably not true that these were kings. And one other thing worth noting is they're also not Jews. We talked about this on Christmas Eve. These were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. And it's surprising in some ways that Jesus is not visited by the Jewish ruling elites, but first despised shepherds, the underclass, and then foreigners on Christmas Eve. But remember, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, God's making an important statement in his story. Don't miss the details that he's going into. He's saying, this salvation I'm offering is not just for Jews, it's for anyone who will accept me. Not a particular class or nationality, tax bracket or race. And so from here on out, the story's fairly familiar, so I'll race through it. The men are supernaturally led by a star, right? They see a particular alignment, and it leads them to Jerusalem and to King Herod. And then we see Herod's paranoia is exhibited, right? He's plotting a, a scheme to get rid of this king. And then also we see a prophecy fulfilled. I don't know if you caught that, but did you see that in the reading? There's something that is quoted from Micah. It doesn't say Micah in our reading, but that's where it comes from. And Micah is hundreds of years earlier. So God has been planning this event for hundreds of years. And then finally in verses 9 and 10, we see the star settle over Bethlehem. And in verse 11, they enter Jesus, uh, the, the house where Jesus' family is living, and they fall down and they worship him. That's our story. And we come now to the gifts that they bring, don't we? What are the gifts they bring, first of all? Frankincense. Frankincense. What else? Gold and myrrh. We've got three gifts, don't we? And they each have meaning. They're not by chance. Each one of them points to who Jesus is. Firstly, the gold. Think about it. We probably would figure this one out ourselves. Gold is often reserved for royalty, right? For kings, queens. They wear gold crowns and so on, okay? The Magi brought gold in some form, whether it's jewelry or coins, uh, we just don't know. But the importance is that it's telling them that Jesus is royal. This is a fitting gift for him. It's, it's foretelling as well. It's fitting because often that's the gift you would bring for a king. 
Secondly, it's foretelling because it tells us in advance that Jesus is going to rule and reign. Think about our reading from Isaiah chapter 9 last week. The government will be upon his shoulders. He will be called the Prince of Peace and so on and so forth. He is going to rule and reign. And the Magi have figured this out. Perhaps they've read the Jewish scriptures. Perhaps it's just because of the star in the sky. They've figured this out. Or perhaps it's just God has planted this in their minds. But they know that he is going to be a king. The second gift is frankincense. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen frankincense or touched it or whatever, but in its original form, it's kind of gummy, all right? It comes from trees, it's gummy, and when it's burned, it releases a sweet-smelling incense and fragrance, okay? And then also a white smoke will come up. The only time you'll ever see it used at Holy Cross, actually, you probably won't see it, you might smell it, is when we have our Good Friday service with the Stations of the Cross, because surreptitiously, I plant some of those joystick things behind me on the service and I light them up before the service and you'll start to smell this strange sort of sweet sickly smell of the frankincense coming up which some people love and some people hate but we do it to remind us of who Jesus is on Good Friday as well. Well this is something that is reserved for the worship of God. Frankincense is reserved for the worship of God. Jews used it at the temple okay when sacrifices were being offered up to God and the smoke rising from the altar of incense was like prayers going up from the people. That's what it represented. And so the Magi give this gift to Jesus to represent the fact that, first of all, he's divine, but also that he is the true high priest. Okay, he is, They've had high priests all along, but now they won't need a high priest anymore. The true high priest has come, and he is there with them now. And it's a permanent priesthood, Hebrews chapter 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have, not, I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Unlike all the high priests who'd gone before, Jesus is going to be a priest forevermore. And his priesthood is a personal one. He's one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And he is one who we can draw near to because of his grace and mercy. He's a very different kind of high priest, not aloof like the man-made gods of the culture surrounding Israel. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Well, the third and final gift is the gift of myrrh. So we've had gold, fit for a king, frankincense for a priest. And then we have myrrh, which is really one of the if not the most unusual gift that he receives. Because do you know what myrrh's most common use is for? What's that? Embalming. It's for embalming a body. So now think about it. If you showed up at a baby shower with your friends, you said, I brought you this wonderful gift of myrrh. Do you know what we use it for? It's for embalming. Your friends are probably not going to be very happy with that. What is wrong with you, okay? But what we know and that what the wise men are foretelling is that Jesus is being born to die. Born to die. I once received a Christmas card like that. It was really, it seemed quite bleak, but it was true. It was black. It was just white writing on the front. It said, born to die. To try and jarringly remind us of why Jesus came at Christmas. He came to die, to live the perfect life we could not live and die uh, in our place, a sacrifice, right? Perfect. Meeting God's holy demands in a way that we couldn't. And the good news is that this is for everyone. Because he dies for us, his plan is being worked out for everyone. Hebrews 2, but we see him for a little while uh, was made lower than the angels, that's Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for someone, for 
James? No, for everyone, right? Everyone. God longs for everyone to enter into a relationship with him. The invitation is not exclusive. Well, finally, we come to the fourth gift. And you may be wondering, well, what is the fourth gift? This, I think this might be a heretical church I've arrived in today, okay? I thought there were just three gifts. But there's a fourth one, and maybe you figured it out. The fourth one is actually one that Matthew tells us about at the end of the story. After they laid down their treasures before Mary and Joseph, they worshipped Jesus. They worshipped Jesus. These wise men came from afar, not because they just wanted to carry good favor with the king by bringing him gifts. No, no, they came because they believed him to be the king of kings forever and ever. And so they wanted to submit their lives to his rule and to his reign. This was their fourth and most important gift, was to bring of themselves. You know, Tim Keller writes this, everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what to worship. Everyone worships something. Every single one of us in here is worshiping something. The only choice we get is what we will worship. Will it be the God of the, who made the universe, the God of the universe, the King of Kings, or will we settle for something much smaller that we think is more applicable or tangible in our lives? We don't know what they had worshipped prior to Jesus. I have a sense it was the stars themselves as astrologers, right? But I'd like to believe that after they encountered him and they bowed down before him, their worship then belonged to Jesus for the rest of their lives. There's a great poem by T.S. Eliot that I've shared before called The Journey of the Magi. And in the poem, it's told from the perspective of one of the kings as he's basically returning home. And he says these words, We return to our places these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. They've gone back home. The problem is far from home, they experienced true worship. They came to understand what it meant to actually worship the real thing. They experienced it. And so when they get back, everything else pales into insignificance compared to that. Suddenly, the things that they loved and longed for and perhaps worshipped, they mean nothing in regard to that. Well, today, the greatest gift that we too can offer to Jesus this Christmas and in 2022 is our praise and our worship, right? It's not our gold or our money or expensive perfumes, but our willingness to kneel before him and submit to him everything that we are and everything that we have. Now, that could be kneeling, literally getting down and kneeling before him each day, but it really it's more about a posture of our lives that we take um, each day. For some of us, it might mean kneeling down before him with our money, right? And our gold, whatever, whatever our, you know, our possessions and so on. Our time, perhaps, our hopes and our dreams. Literally, each time that we think about using these things, we kneel down before him, either literally or just uh, metaphorically in a sense, and we say, God, these are your things. For some of us, it may mean giving up our pride and recognizing that we are nothing without him, nothing. And that we need to admit that we are sinners in need of a savior, the savior, Emmanuel, God with us. To quote Tim Keller again, the secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. 
You need worship. You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and to be moved by it. Moved to tears and moved to laughter. Moved by who God is and what he has done for you. Have you been moved to tears? Have you been moved to glorious worship? Moved to recognize his greatness and his mercy? You know, the Christmas story can become so passe to us, can't it? But it reveals to us the lengths that God is willing to go in order that we might be saved. And one of my favorite passages in scripture is Philippians 2. We had it read at our wedding, uh, mine and Melissa's. And it says this, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, the incarnation of Jesus is Jesus emptying himself. It's like the best equivalent I can think of is like a king literally laying down his crown and going to live as a peasant among the peasant people. It would have been scandalous to think that happening in England 500, 600, 700 years ago. It would not happen. But Jesus takes on human flesh and he suffers for our sake. He does even more than that. He goes beyond that, even suffering to the point of death. And he deserves our great, our weeping, our glorious, our laughing worship in this place and wherever we go as well. This week, I encourage you to bow down to him. Wake up early and bow down to him. Spend time with him saying, Lord, I'm yours. Go to school or work and bow down to him in how you treat other people and in how you do your work, how you do your essays, how you do your assignments. Bow down to him when you go to the grocery store. It seems crazy, but think about how you treat others there, how you treat the people that you meet, your friends, your strangers, the cashiers. Bow down to him there. Bow down to him in how you eat. Bow down to him in what you cook, in how you clean. Bow down to him as you play sports, as you watch television or read books. Bow down to him. Serve him in all those things. Bow down to him as you plan your calendar, your work schedule, your free time, your holidays. How can these things actually glorify him? Bow down to him with your spending and your giving. Even bow down to him during worship services. Not giving him half-hearted praise, but wholehearted adoration for who he is and what he's done. Yes, submit everything to him, saying, Lord, how can I love and serve you right now in this moment? Make that your number one New Year's resolution in 2022 and experience the true freedom that true worship brings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we bow down to you. We bow down to you, Lord, because of what you have done for us. And we give you, hopefully, the most precious thing we can give to you, which is our hearts and our very lives. We submit them to you, Lord God. We say, Lord, we are yours. We long to serve you in every aspect of our lives. Not just a small piece, not just giving you an hour on Sunday, but giving you every waking and every sleeping hour, Lord God, that we might glorify you and that others might come to know you as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.